electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks very much, Scott. I am Dominic Chu. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Today's jobs report was the largest miss since 1998. So how did economists get it so wrong? And does this number ease any early tapering fears from the Fed? Plus, Walmart makes a big move into the healthcare business following in the footsteps of its biggest rival, Amazon. We'll look at the battle between those two behemoths to dominate in more than just retail. And Musk's crypto warning, the return of travel, and is GoPro the new subscription play? That's all ahead, but we begin with today's record-setting markets. Take a look at those very much in the green so far today. We do now see, you can tell, some record highs in the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500 as well. Both of those indexes setting those record marks. The Nasdaq actually outperforming today. You can see there on a 1% basis there. The Nasdaq Composite certainly showing some gains. One other place to watch, another record part of the market right now, is perhaps what some traders look at as a leading indicator, maybe, of economic activity. That's the Dow Jones Transportation Index. Over the last year, it's nearly doubled. We'll put another gold star here because it, too, sets a record high in trading today. So those Dow Transports, very much an upward trend over the near and medium term for Dow Transportation stocks. And then two of the stocks to watch today are ones that have snapped losing streaks. Roku is up 12% on the heels of better-than-expected quarterly reports. Nikola Corporation also as well, showing some signs of life. They're up about 13%. The reason why they're notable, both of these stocks are well off their highs over the course of the last 52 weeks, and they're both snapping eight-day losing streaks. So keep an eye on those particular stocks. Let's now dig into that disappointing jobs report number from earlier this morning. The whisper number was 1 million jobs in April created. Instead, the economy only created 266,000 of them last month. March's payrolls were revised lower, and the unemployment rate ticked up from a flat 6% by one-tenth to 6.1%. And in a labor market where companies are doing all they can to entice back workers, average hourly wages jumped. So what happened last month? Here to break it all down is Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics for Bank of America Global Research. Michelle, the simple question for you, first of all, what was your number and how did economists get it so wrong this time? Um, so we were forecasting 950,000. So clearly it was a big disappointment relative to our forecast. Now, when we think about the forecast and when we run our models, there's a variety of different indicators that we look at. We do look at some quote unquote, hard statistics around initial jobless claims. Um, and then we look at a whole lot of surveys, including the conference board survey of labor differential, what small businesses in particular are saying, some um, data from the Census Bureau on the Census Pulse survey. There's a lot, a lot of different indicators there. And you know what? It, it really was mixed heading into this report. Some of the surveys were very, very um, cautionary around their report. Um, so when we came up with our forecast, it was kind of splitting the ground between what we saw from a lot of the high frequency indicators. So, so Michelle, I, I mean, this 
I love getting economists take on this because whenever we talk about numbers like the jobs report, it becomes oftentimes a partisan issue. People like to spin it either way. We just heard President Biden trying to justify some of the numbers as well. I wonder from an economist perspective, what do you think was behind that big, big miss there? Why only 266,000 jobs, given all of those data points that you're looking at? So I think that there's a few factors. The first one I would say has to do with labor shortages, which, Dom, you alluded to in your opening. Um, You have a lot of surveys suggesting that businesses are out there actively trying to recruit workers. There's reports of, of, of very high job openings across a number of industries, even those industries most hard hit from the pandemic. And I think that the economy just has to transition. There's a lot of friction in terms of getting people back in the labor market and back in the jobs that they had before, something similar to what they had before. So there could be a certain amount of skill mismatch. There could be some challenges in terms of the reentry rate. Um, and I think that's creating some issues in terms of getting the, the, the actual numbers for job creation. If that is the case, if it's due to labor shortages, more a supply side issue than a demand side issue, then I think as we look ahead to the next few months, we should see job creation ramp up again because the demand is there for workers. And that, I think, is really important. Um, the second more wonky response has to do with potential challenges around seasonal adjustments, but I won't get into that. <laughs> All right. So, so yes, we, we have heard some of those explanations about the seasonal yeah. adjustment factor as well. I, I wonder, though, you, you look at such a wide array of different pieces of data. We know that the economic data has been generally positive. Is there anything, though, about the consumer spending picture right now outside of jobs Mm -hmm. that might indicate that things are continuing on their correct path upward, despite the fact that we got this, quote unquote, biggest miss in jobs since 1998? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're monitoring in a real time um, aggregated spend on Bank of America credit and debit cards, and it's still robust. So there was some moderation for March, um, of course, which makes sense. I mean, March was a gangbuster number for consumer spending. So it's coming off of those extraordinarily strong um, you know, growth rates. But we're still seeing a very solid performance when it comes to consumer spending across a variety of categories. Consumers still going out and spending on goods, particularly things like furniture and home improvement and and clothing, and then also starting to really, you know, embrace more services spend as well, particularly as restrictions are eased. So to me, the the high frequency data is absolutely still showing an economy where demand is strong and the consumer is moving along and businesses are continuing to invest. You just need the supply side to catch up with this big increase in demand. So, 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 uh, okay. We know, and many of our viewers know, we we often make allusion to the fact that the U.S. economy is driven 70-some percent, give or take a few percentage points, by consumer spending. Just how important is that consumer spending picture going to be, knowing that the biggest part of the job creation that we've seen so far in this country has been in maybe lower to middle income wages in the hospitality and leisure section? section. That's the part that accounted for the, let's say, the the entirety of, of the job gain right now. So it did account for them, you know, all the job growth, as you said, over 300,000 jobs created in leisure and hospitality. But remember that there's a lot of room for catch up in that sector. That's where you have the biggest deficit of jobs relative to the pre-COVID level. So there's still more work to be done in terms of adding more jobs in that sector, getting more people in that cohort back and working. Um, and that will help to support labor income. And in the interim, 
there's a lot of excess savings out there. A lot of people, you know, received stimulus, um, didn't spend it all just yet. We know a lot of sitting in savings. Um, and then there was also some unintentional savings that happened over the last year as people were unable to spend as they normally did. So I think it is still very favorable. You have dry powder out there from what wasn't spent over the last year. And then you have labor income, which increasingly should increase as the labor market continues to improve. So yes, today was disappointing. But I, I, I do believe that there's plenty of capacity for more improvement ahead of us. All right. Bank of America's Michelle Meyer. It's always great to get your thoughts here. The insights are always appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. All right. And a quick programming note. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will talk about the jobs picture and the infrastructure bill in an exclusive interview on Closing Bell today, 4 p.m. Eastern time, a must-watch interview you will not want to miss. Well, let's talk markets now. Investors are taking the bad news is good news approach for trading today. That huge jobs disappointment sending yields lower, boosting technology stocks. Not only that, but the weak report could signal that any potential early tapering by the Federal Reserve is now pretty much off the table. For more now, let's bring in Chris Grisanti, Chief Equity Strategist at MAI Capital Management, also Robert Teeter, Managing Director and the Head of Investment Policy and Strategy at Silvercrest Asset Management as well. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Chris, we'll begin with you. What is it about today's jobs report that sticks out the most in your mind, and does it change your investment thesis? Sure, Dom. Thanks. It's nice to be with you again. I'd say two things are important about this jobs report. It shows that the consensus idea that there will certainly be large growth ahead and will last for a long time might be flawed in two ways. First, it may be less reliable. And second, it it probably won't last for years. We're going to get great growth this year and it will probably slack off next year. So that has consequences for, for stocks that you pick in the marketplace. Now, now, Robert, I, I, I mean, if you take a look at the, the focus for many traders and investors on the heels of this jobs report, it is squarely fixed on hospitality and leisure. We know that the market's been seeing it for a while. Has there anything has anything changed about your outlook for those certain cyclical parts of the economy, given that we've seen this jobs report come out today? No, I don't think anything's changed. You're absolutely right. That's the biggest disrupted part of the job market. About a third of the missing jobs are in leisure and hospitality. Uh, That tends to be a lower wage area of the economy, so it doesn't have quite as much impact on spend. Uh, It will take some time to get back to normal there. But by and large, markets tend to like things that uh, last for a while, that you have a visible horizon and and avoiding a bit of a boom and bust. So I think overall, the market's digesting this. I think the jobs growth is on track. And we'll continue to see a pretty strong recovery. What do you think, Robert, is the thing that could derail this recovery. All the news has been good up until now. GDP, survey data, sentiment data. This has been the first real hiccup. So what is it that we have to worry about heading into June, July and August? That's right. Well, over the summer, I think there's going to be quite a clash between the mindset of is inflation coming back back versus productivity? You know, typically things heat up in the summer. Uh, We're seeing that a bit now with commodities. We've got a bit of supply chain and logistical demand issues that are sorting themselves out post-COVID. Don't forget the base effect issues and the pent-up demand. So I do think we'll see an inflationary burst here. Uh, But similarly to the 1990s, when there was a lot of tech spend and tech spend really helps bring down inflation, I think we'll see that same dynamic here. The 90s started off with CPI over five uh, and ended with CPI around 1.5, largely due to that tech spend. And I think we'll see the same thing happening here as we work through the summer and the fall. So, Chris, I mean, you're a portfolio manager. That that means you have to put assets into an investment vehicle for clients. What exactly does look attractive now at this point? with certain parts of the market at record highs and other ones still just lagging? 
Sure, Tom. So, so I tend to agree with Bob that, that I think that, um, that the unemployment report is kind of a blip. But I also think six to nine months from now, we'll be peering into 2022 with hard compares for these cyclical companies. And meanwhile, right now, tech and communications have been left behind this year. And they're growing astoundingly, not in a cyclical way, but in a secular way, which I really like. So yeah, these uh, travel and banking stocks and energy stocks will bounce back sharply this year. But where will we be in three to five years? And if you're building a long-term portfolio, I think some of these companies have really long tails and they haven't, they continue to grow not at the expense of the cyclical stocks, but in, in, in right along with them. So stocks like Facebook and Google, it's not terribly an imaginative call, but I do think it'll be profitable. All right. Chris Grisanti and Robert Teeter, thank you both very much. Gentlemen, have a nice weekend. Thank you. All right. Coming up on the show, Walmart moves into telehealth. Yet another area where it will compete with, guess who? Amazon.com. So what could be next and who is better positioned to dominate? Well, everything. That's coming up ahead. Plus, a closer look at one fast food chain projecting over $2 billion in sales this year. But could a chicken and worker shortage derail that entire plan? The CEO of Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers joins us live coming up later on in the show. We are back after this break in two minutes. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Walmart announcing this week the company purchased telehealth provider MEMED to expand their growing health services. MEMD is a company that will do that in telehealth. Many are seeing this as a bid to compete with Amazon, which also recently announced plans to expand their own telehealth operations as well. The companies now compete in a clash of the titans on multiple fronts. Yes, it's retail, but now it's healthcare and grocery as well. So who will take the crown? Joining me now to discuss this are Jason Del Rey, Recode Senior Correspondent, and also Jan Niffen, J. Rogers Niffen CEO. Thank you, gentlemen, both for being here. Uh, Jason, I will start with you. There are very few people out there in this world who know this dynamic between Amazon and Walmart better than you do from a journalistic perspective. Give us the landscape right now. Why is this battle getting so heated and why do they keep going after each other? I think over the last few years, Walmart finally realizes the existential threat that Amazon really poses to all of its business. Um, and so you see this battle playing out in multiple fronts. You talk about retail, healthcare, grocery. And, you know, Walmart last year came out with Walmart Plus, a subscription service. I think there's a recognition that if they do not steal some Amazon Prime customers away and that program keeps growing, you know, we're going to look back a decade from now 
and see the last few years as the turning point when Walmart started to deteriorate. So there are certainly, Jan, a, a lot of trends that we, we talk about in retail. And, and certainly when it comes to Amazon and Walmart, it's not just about retail. But who in your mind emerged from the pandemic the best between the two of them and why? Wow, that's quite a question. Well, first of all, I don't think there's any chance of Walmart deteriorating. I think what's really happening is Amazon is running faster than Walmart. We saw Walmart do that from the 1960s all the way up through 1999. And then the crown started to move and we saw Amazon run really hard. I think coming out of the pandemic, they're both extraordinarily well positioned. It's everybody else that's in trouble. And they've always been each other's biggest competitors once Amazon came on the scene. Walmart's the biggest threat to Amazon. Amazon's the biggest threat to Walmart. And that's across all the disciplines. Target plays a good game. Costco plays a good game. Home Depot does. But if you're not one of those big players, you're getting pushed around and your toes are getting mashed. And that's going to continue to happen. I actually right now like Walmart a lot because I think they've solved online pickup. They've solved pick, pick up in, online pickup in store, online pickup curbside, and online selling and easy delivery from the store. So I think they're getting better, and I think they're actually pretty tough to compete with since they've got 4,700 distribution centers. They just call them stores. But Amazon is the most convenient, has the stickiest website of any retailer in the world. So they're not going to lose share here, but everybody else is going to lose share. And those two can't afford to let anybody else have any of the business. So they've got to continue to be fierce competitors across all those disciplines you just named. So, 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 so Jason, this is, this is key because that fierce competition, the, the reason why I can see from a big picture macro perspective, each of these companies wants to improve their footprint in healthcare, telehealth, whatever it is, is because in decades from now, it will be the biggest part of our GDP. That's the forecast, healthcare mm-hmm. spending overall. When it comes to this particular dynamic, who is positioned better right now in your mind to capitalize on getting market share within healthcare? Is it Amazon or Walmart? Listen, I think the the 4,700 store footprint um, is a huge, huge advantage. I think Walmart's history in this space and pharmacy is a big advantage. And I, you know, I've been told that Doug McMillan, you know, CEO of Walmart, when his legacy you know, people look back on his legacy. He wants innovation and being a huge player in healthcare to be toward the top of that list. So, you know, I, I think they have a really good chance here. Uh, again, though, Amazon and, you know, their innovative capabilities across sectors, I, I think that should never be counted out. They've made a couple of acquisitions in this space. And I think it's just, I think it's going to be a fascinating battle to see if either of them can make huge inroads in this industry over the next five years. If you had to handicap, Jason, which one you you think has, I mean, you mentioned the footprint physically of Amazon. I I wonder because when it comes to healthcare, it might be that physical aspect that's more important. We'd like to know our pharmacist. We'd like to kind of see these things play out. We want to go and see the product and touch it, whatever, rather than have it just delivered to us from some random doctor that we never get to talk to. Is that going to be an advantage comparatively because of because of Walmart's big physical presence? I think so. But but just just, you know, telehealth, we're seeing telehealth um, sort of explode as a result of the pandemic. And a lot of that, you know, a piece of that trend will never turn back the other way. And so, you know, these are sort of, you know, digital capabilities are 
are areas where I always give Amazon the edge. And um, I, I it, it's just, it's I'm not giving you the answer you want, but it's it's really tough to say. I see it on both sides. That's okay. Jay, Jay Rogers Niffin, I will give the last word to you in 20 seconds here. Who do you like better over the next five years? Well, the long-term game is healthcare. The short-term game is groceries and apparel. And I really like Walmart and groceries and apparel. So over the next five years, I think you're going to see Walmart put on a hard push that puts a lot of pressure on Amazon there and in third-party sellers. Longer term than that, you know, they're both big winners. Who knows who wins in healthcare? That's pretty far in the future. I do sure. think telemedicine's taken over. But right now, in the near term, I like Walmart. All right. Jason Del Rey, also Jan Niffen. Thank you guys both very much. Have a nice weekend, guys. You too. All right, coming up on the show, DraftKings betting big on a return to normal for sports, but Wall Street not it, uh, not really all in on it, I guess, if you want to use gambling parlance. You can see down 3% right now. Is the company too confident that all calendar sports will be played this year? We will debate it. Plus, M&A activity is finally picking up in the regional bank industry, but why now? We look at the key factors driving it and who could be ready to make a deal in regional banks. We are back in two minutes. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now, you can see here, up about one half of 1% for the major indices. The Nasdaq up by nearly 1%. At the highs of the day, the Dow was up roughly 185 points. The low of the day, we were down 84, so tilting towards the highs. Now, here are some of the big movers at this hour. Shares of Peloton higher following a revenue beat and a smaller-than-expected loss for its most recent quarter. The company also said it would take a hit of $165 million after recalling its treadmill products. Those shares are clawing back, though, but still on pace for their fourth straight week of declines. That's its longest losing streak since December of 2019. Those shares right now up nearly 2%. Meanwhile, shares of Tilray are on fire, up 20% on a double upgrade to buy from sell over analysts at Jefferies. That bank calling Tilray's merger with Afria the perfect match. The stock's on pace to break its six-day losing streak. That's its longest losing streak since September of last year. And one of the trends we are watching this week is the battle between old energy and new energy. Legacy companies like Baker Hughes, Schlumberger, and Halliburton are all up double digits this week, while some of the newer names focused on renewables like Workhorse, Plug Power, QuantumScape, and others are going in the other direction, down as much as 20% for the week overall. So a very big dynamic playing out in the energy patch. Let's now send it over to Leslie Picker, who's got a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Leslie. Hey, Dom. Thanks so much. Here's what's happening at this hour. The four former police officers involved in the arrest and death of George Floyd have been indicted by a federal grand jury. The charges include violating Floyd's civil rights through the use of unreasonable force and failure to provide medical care. Derek Chauvin also faces a use of force charge stemming from the arrest of a 14-year-old back in 2017. No word yet from the former officers or their attorneys. See what the Floyd family is saying about the new charges tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. 
Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announcing she will not run for re-election. Bottoms says she doesn't know what's next for her, but that it's time to move on. In the same way that it was very clear to me almost five years ago that I should run for mayor of Atlanta, it is abundantly clear to me today that it is time to pass the baton on to someone else. And the World Health Organization has approved China's Sinopharm COVID vaccine for emergency use. It's the first vaccine from a non-Western country to gain backing from the WHO. Good news on that front, Dom. Back over to you. Absolutely. Leslie Picker, thank you very much for that news update. Well, crypto wins and winnings. DraftKings goes all in. And what's old is new again. All that and more coming up in today's rapid fire. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here is your Friday Fast Forward. Inflation, vacation, and vaccinations are some of the key themes this week. As inflation mentions on earnings calls, climb 800%. We'll get both the consumer and the producer price index prints for April. Marriott, Airbnb, and Disney are just some of the getaway names reporting earnings this week. We'll also get the first quarter releases from Roblox and Coinbase. Roblox has climbed 48% since going public, while Coinbase is up 9% since its IPO. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky will speak at CNBC's Healthy Returns Conference on Tuesday. Square co-founder Jack Dorsey will host a fireside chat on Thursday. Friday brings us a read on the consumer as sentiment and retail sales for the month of April are out. And we'll hear from hedge fund heavyweights, including David Einhorn, Bill Ackman, and Seth Parman at this year's Sohn Conference. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's catch up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Seema Modi, CNBC fast money trader Tim Seymour, and Contessa Brewer as well. The Countess. First topic here, the crypto craze. Could it be a boom or a bust? Well, it depends on who you ask. Two votes of confidence from the big banks. Citigroup reportedly taking steps toward crypto offerings for clients. And CNBC.com's Hugh Son reporting that Goldman Sachs is already successfully trading them. But the Bank of England's governor is warning investors to only buy crypto if they are prepared to lose all of their money. And the Doge father himself, Elon Musk, even warning to invest with caution in a tweet today on cryptocurrencies. Elon Musk warning about cryptocurrencies. What a time to be alive. Next up here, check out what's happening. This is, this is going to be something interesting here, guys. If you take a look at all of that spattering of color and commentary coming out, Tim Seymour, I look to you, from a trader's perspective, are you getting a little bit worried about what's happening in crypto and the prices that you're seeing? Well, the institutional adoption is very good for the asset class, and it's not surprising that Wall Street is chasing both uh, like higher, higher spreads, higher, higher margins on, on these products, less, you know, less transparency, more inefficiency in these markets, I would argue, although uh, I think digital folks will tell you they're the most efficient markets. Um, you know, the, the fact that you've got volatility in these markets uh, make it really exciting for Wall Street. Central banks, look, I, not surprising to hear the BOE taking this stance. They probably should take this stance. Um, and interesting 
interesting debate. They're, they're saying plenty of extrinsic value, but no intrinsic value. And I think theoretically, I, I don't know that you can have that. In other words, I, I actually think that especially with Bitcoin, which has 21 million or so outstanding coins only, um, there is intrinsic value. And, and so the question is, what's the market putting on it? And that's the, extrin- the extrinsic number. And um, look, I, I, I think it's it's been a very frothy time. I would argue caution. There are certainly things like Dogecoin that I don't understand, don't want to understand. But but look at Ethereum, look at the platform, look at NFTs, look at the growth of the digitization of assets. It's alive and well. Seema Modi, we've come a long way because I remember talking to you about this. It was maybe a, a few years ago when we sent you out in the field and you were going around Manhattan looking for places that you could actually spend Bitcoin and to go and buy things. And you could. <laughs> I got to figure it's a little bit more dynamic than that now. We're not as much talking about the use case as we are talking about straight price appreciation. What exactly does that tell you about what cryptocurrency will look like in the coming years? Well, we put that, uh, that, that sort of experiment to the test again, Dom, just a couple of months ago where we tried to buy things with Bitcoin. And once again, there's very few places you can actually use it to transact and buy different goods around New York. But here's the thing. Mainstream interest is certainly growing for cryptocurrencies. The banks finally waking up and recognizing that this is a big opportunity and not just saying they're going to offer trading solutions, but also building out the infrastructure, custody, uh, prime services, prime lending. There seems to be a big opportunity there, especially when you speak to Coinbase, Robinhood, Gemini, these other players that really see that this is a place that requires um, more sort of infrastructure to be built out as crypto trading continues to surge. All right. Crypto enthusiasts and hodlers taking note there and saying that the legitimacy only increases when you have the likes of Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and others getting more in on the action here. All right. Next up, guys, DraftKings is all in on a return to normal for sports. The company reported better than expected results and raised its 2021 revenue guidance on the assumption that all pro and college sports will play their seasons as planned this year. Shares are lower today and only marginally higher for the year so far. But with pro sports returning and nearly 20 more states either set to launch or working on legislation to legalize sports betting, more business could be just around the corner. Contessa, the DraftKings phenomenon. We saw the big drops in Penn National Gaming over the past couple of days here. These stocks have been on fire. Has the street overshot expectations perhaps a little bit? I think there is some skepticism when these companies are reporting such big revenue beats um, that that maybe all of the pent up demand has happened in March and April and that you won't continue to see that kind of recovery going through the summer. With DraftKings, there's a different story here. The revenue is great, but it costs them a lot of money. It costs 41 percent for them to bring in that revenue. And when you're looking at it, it's more than what it cost this time last year. And so is revenue great? Yes. But the the losses continue to come in. And what we heard on the call was that they they think that they're going to continue to see those losses through the next couple quarters. That's not such great news. It's great that they have uh, unique players coming in and trying out their app. It's great that they have new content to offer. It's great that they're retaining these players. But there's a cost to doing that business. Hey, so, Tim Seymour, from a trader's perspective, there have been some massive runs in some of these stocks here. Still attractive to you to, to enter and buy these stocks at these levels? Well, as a trader that's long DraftKings, I'm actually concerned by the price action, especially, you know, just broke through the, below the 200 day for the first time ever um, at a time when we know that they're not supposed to be profitable. In fact, this is uh, a land grab and you're, you're pricing this on a, you know, first of all, valuation wise, it's a price to sales story. 
Um, it's it's about an addressable market that's growing. 21 states plus D.C. Uh, and, and that's how you begin to kind of build this this footprint where you begin to forecast for them. Look, they they, they beat uh, on on the top line. That's great. They upped their guidance, I should say. Um, their monthly uniques was not what the street wanted to see. So uh, as someone that believes in the sector and in the space and the growth, uh, I, you know, the price action has not been great, but I, I think it was well, you know, well flagged. All right. A, lot, a very momentous part of the market right now. All right. Then there's this, guys. Vaccinations and pent up demand are leading to a booking boom for U.S. travelers. Goldman Sachs estimates consumer spending on hotel visits surged to about 77 percent of pre-pandemic levels last month. And while Expedia reported a loss and decline in revenues for the first quarter, it still beat Wall Street estimates on a surge in domestic travel and vacation rental demand. CEO Peter Kern told SEMA earlier that while home rentals are surging, hotel stays are just as hot right now. The conventional lodging hotel space is, I don't know if it's just as robust, but it is very robust. And in many cases, we're seeing booking levels now or into the summer that are above where they were in 2019. Seema, it was a great interview. Take us through what were the biggest takeaways for you about this kind of heating up in in the travel and leisure sector. Yeah, well, you heard it right there from Peter that the demand for hotels starting to increase as vaccinations pick up around the world. But here's the thing. It's still lagging vacation rentals. That is the hot, hot market in travel right now. And that's what forward bookings show as well. The average daily rate now at $254. That's 30 percent higher back 30% 30% higher than 2019 levels. So clearly that's where interest is. Expedia putting more money on marketing, advertising spend to really boost its Verbo brand so it can beat Airbnb at its own game. It's also putting more money into poaching high-quality hosts, which he says is part of their strategy in building out supply, Dom. That's the biggest thing. If you go online right now to one of these big beach destinations to book a home, it's getting very hard to find the good homes that we would actually want to stay in. So that's the big challenge going forward. It's a good challenge to have, though, demand is so hot, they need to find ways to get more homes on their platform. Contessa, I mean, you know this because you cover the gaming industry. The the folks in Las Vegas are saying that you cannot find a hotel room in Las Vegas for for, for the foreseeable future on weekends. Now, weekdays are a different story, but still, it tells you that there is demand for this kind of booking. Flights also cost much more than they did three or four months ago. What all of this has got to be telling you that maybe the consumer is ready to get out there and, and move around again. Even April, 85% occupied is what Caesars reported on its earnings call. And then the the maximum capacity restrictions lift. They think they're going to be fully committed in, in May and June, which is great news for Las Vegas. But I'll tell you, for those who think, okay, I'm vaccinated, I'm going to get out there, I'm going to get a deal finally, there's going to be, a, there's no deals. There's no deals to be had. You're going to pay out the nose for flights, and you're going to pay out the nose, especially if you're staying is that a thing, paying out the nose? I don't even know. We what get what you're trying to say. You're going to pay for that. <laughs> if, if, you're go- if you're going to stay on the weekends, you're going to pay what were old, um, uh, you know, peak market prices. Hey, Tim, but, okay. you got any travel planned? Yeah. Well, I, t- I tell you what, you're also paying for it for the stock. So really quickly, I, I just say Expedia is 60 percent above its pre-COVID levels. And, yeah, I get where hotels are at 77 percent of former levels. Stock's not cheap. Uh, I think it's overdone here. I'd probably be fading Expedia here. This is only leisure demand, Don. What they, what's really key for the hotel operators will be 
corporate conferences, galas, trade shows, and, you know, we'll speak to CEO of Marriott. 50% of their bookings is from corporate bookings, right? They need that business to return sooner rather than later. We heard Hilton CEO say the same thing just a couple days ago there. All right, guys, moving on to the final topic here. What's old is new again with Groupon and GoPro. Higher, both, after reporting earnings results here. Groupon blew estimates out of the water, saying it saw a pandemic boost from people buying deals. Forget this things. Things like Botox and liposuction services and now is benefiting from the economy actually reopening for experiences. While GoPro reported a solid start to 2021, its CEO telling investors, quote, we've evolved from a hardware unit sales-centric business to a successful direct-to-consumer subscription-centric business with a significant opportunity to grow margin and profitability. GoPro hit 1 million subscribers for its live stream and video storage service last quarter. Tim Seymour, I feel like I've heard this story before. I remember covering GoPro when they what? talked about becoming a content company and, 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 and that right. sort of thing. So, so where are we? To, what are we to believe yeah. now? Well, I, 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 I hear you. I, I remember this too. And we were putting, we were trying to put a content multiple on it. It doesn't make any sense. But, but look, GoPro, Nick Woodman, first of all, congrats on at least a transition here where this is a subscription based service. And, and, you know, call this the GameStop meets Apple um, of, of, you know, business model. Clearly, we, we've applauded Apple. We've given them the multiple in terms of what they've done with their services business. And, and GameStop goes from obsolescence to possibly being a DTC story. So that's, that's what he's working on. And I I think that's a case where you really, you know, whether look, the stocks had a major, major move. And I think it, a lot is priced into this good news. And I would probably take a pause here, uh, even though heroic, yes, pun intended, uh, move by by Nick Woodman and the folks at GoPro. I see what you did there. The hero cam and everything yes, else. There. Seema Modi, you've covered this company's IPO. It wasn't that long ago, but still. What's the, evo- what's, what's the evolution been like in your mind? Well, it's interesting. It was one of the most high-profile IPOs back in 2014 at $24 a share. It was the pioneer, as you say, in the action camera market. But then what happened? Competition came around. We all realized as consumers, well, our iPhones are pretty good now at taking photos, so maybe we don't need a GoPro. Uh, but interesting to see these comments from Nick Woodman about how this company squarely fits into this reopening trade. More people are going out, seeking those destinations in the mountains and skiing, and therefore perhaps the need for more of these uh, high-demand cameras and also rolling out the subscription service, which they think will really help sales going forward. All right, Countess, let's talk about Groupon. Are you a user? Do you, do you see well, that, the use case in the, in, in the coming years post-pandemic? Yeah. GoPro. But I think it's back to what Seaman was just saying. Like, we're ready now. The appetite for experiences is there. So what explains the Botox and the lipo? Well, you got to look good doing it. <laughs> well, we all know each of you guys looks pretty good there. Rapid fire. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. That's Seema Modi, Tim Seymour, and Contessa Brewer. Thank you three, and have a nice weekend, guys. All right, coming up on the show, from chlorine to rubber to tanker truck drivers, it seems like there's a shortage of nearly everything these days, and you can add chicken to that list. Up next, we'll talk to the CEO of Raising Cane about how he's winging it with rising costs and tighter supply. See what I did there? Winging it? We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. As the chicken wars continue to rage, restaurants are feeling the heat from higher prices and tighter supplies. Chicken prices have more than doubled since last year, according to Erner Berry. So how are restaurants navigating the chicken dilemma? Joining me now is Todd Gray's founder and CEO of Raising Cane's Chicken. 
this is I, I've never had your product, so I have to go out there and try it just to give you an honest evaluation, Todd. But let's talk about whether or not it's a big deal for you right now. The tightness of supply for chickens. Yeah, it is. And, you know, luckily we've been in business for 25 years and we have great relationships with our vendors. Uh, but it's still very challenging just to get the supply of chicken tenders we need to service the demand from customers right now. How much demand is there from customers? Are you seeing a return? People want to go back out, uh, not just take out food, but maybe even dine in in certain locations? Yeah, I mean, look, the demand for uh, restaurants from customers is at an all-time high, more than I've seen in 25 years. Let me give you an example. Uh, this Sunday on Mother's Day, Open Table just released that it's up 900% from this time last year, last Mother's Day. But obviously, that was through a pandemic. But what's important is it's op- up over 70% pre-pandemic. So it just shows you restaurants' demand are through the roof. Uh, but we have a lot of challenges, one being labor, two being commodity costs, and three, specifically, specifically for me, getting the supply of chicken I need to service that demand. So, so, so with that demand profile that you, that you expect down the line, you, you probably have ambitious growth plans. What exactly is the labor supply issue going to do to, you, to those growth plans? We just heard a big jobs report out this morning. It appears as though the hiring situation is starting to slow down a little bit, and many small business owners are saying that they can't even, can't even find people to hire these days. Is that true from a restaurant operator's perspective? Can you give us the real skinny on this? Yeah, I've never seen the demand for labor in the restaurant industry higher than it is today. And so just common sense, everybody's rehiring at one time, right? So every restaurant's restarting. Everybody's going after the same applicant pool. And normally, normally an applicant might look at one or two restaurants uh, when they're considering a new job. Well, now they're looking at a dozen. And so what restaurants are doing right now is they're offering uh, you know, signing bonuses. They're going higher wages to attract people because they can't keep up with their customer demand they have right now and they can't keep their restaurant staff. We're experiencing the same thing, um, you know, but being a, being a larger business, uh, we're able to do things like retainage bonuses, right? We did 3 million of those in the first quarter. My heart goes out to the mom and pop independent family-owned restaurants that don't have the same resources that we do. What, what exactly are you doing then? I mean, you, you mentioned some of those things. How, what are you paying? What, what kind of benefits are you extending? How are you competing to get some of those workers out there? Yeah, I mean, some restaurants, they like to do signing bonuses on the front end or do higher wages during a tough time right now. I don't believe in that philosophy because I think sometimes you can get people that are coming to your company to work for the wrong reasons. Right. But what I like to do is retainage bonuses. I like when people stay and they stay with us and they generally like their job, they'll stay longer uh, giving out those bonuses. So just in the first quarter alone, uh, we're already at three million and uh, we expect that to continue during this this tough labor crisis right now. Todd, where do you think the hottest markets are for for your restaurants? uh, Geography speaking, are, are there certain places where you expect to see a bigger surge than others? Look, it is across the board right now. We're up 10% pre-COVID levels. Uh, we actually, it's harder for us to drive any more sales because we're cubed out, as we call it. We're just, we're as busy as we can be. We're starting to reopen our dining rooms slowly uh, where it's appropriate, and uh, we can keep our customers and crew safe. But every time we open up more seats, it's there and everybody's coming in. Across the board in over 30 states, the demand is just as high all, all the way across the board. That's great for our economy and it's great for the restaurant industry. If we can just hire people and keep our costs down and get enough chicken. All right. Todd Graves saying he needs to hire people. So if you're looking for a job in any of those 30 states, <laughs> apparently go check out Kane's Chicken. Thank you very much, Todd, for, for joining us today. Thank and good you. luck with your campaign. Thank you.
All right. Well, still ahead on the show is M&A for regional banks finally on the way after being often teased. It looks like it could finally be happening for us. We'll get into why, the how, the what it means for your money, who's at play, what's coming up next. And don't forget, you can always watch us live on the go using the CNBC app on your mobile platform. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The Spider Regional Bank ETF, ticker KRE, is enjoying its longest monthly winning streak ever, nearly doubling since October. So our expectations of deal-making helping to boost those banks. Our own bank expert, Wilfred Frost, is here with whether we could finally see that wave of M&A coming through with consolidations. Wilf, we've already seen some deals. We have, Dom. Uh, good to see you, by the way. And We always seem to be waiting, though, for the wave of banks M&A in the U.S. And while we haven't seen a tsunami arrive quite yet, we have seen some ripples. Last year's PNC purchase of BBVA's U.S. assets for $11.6 billion has been followed this year by SVB buying Boston Private for $10.5 and M&T buying People's United for $7.6 billion, for example. There was a need for consolidation pre-COVID, in particular driven by the need for scale to compete with the growing fintech threat. That's been amplified in the last year by low rates and soft loan growth, the bread and butter of regional bank revenues. But the critical extra factor, for the first time in over a decade, banks have plenty of capital. And their share price appreciation in recent months make buybacks less attractive than they have been and increase the incentive, therefore, to do something strategic instead. A few uh, other factors, Dom, to watch out for. Size. The biggest eight banks are out of the running for making an acquisition. The expectation is, therefore, if there is M&A, it will be more medium and smaller size players from here. Mergers of equals worth watching out for. That's uh, like that form that formed truest between BB&T and SunTrust. Uh, and those merger of equals have historically been the most successful long term. It removes the need to pay uh, a premium for an already elevated bank share prices, but still delivers on efficiencies and scale. Analysts are likely to favor those types of deals the most. And finally, the rationale. Uh, scale applies to all of the thinking behind M&A, but is it to increase geographic exposure like PNC and BBVA, for example, or deepening existing exposure uh, in a set region like M&T and People's uh, deal? Here, by the way, Dom, is KBW's five biggest names on their potential sell list, uh, Wintrust, Bank United, uh, Associated Cadence uh, and Eagle, uh, ranked there by asset size, not market cap, but some ones to keep an eye out uh, for going forward, Dom. Wilfred, it's, it's a fascinating trade to watch play out, and I just know this because we oftentimes associate closely with our community banks, so it'll be fun to see how those things play out consolidation-wise. Mm-hmm. Wilfred Frost, thank you very much. We'll see you for the closing bell at 3 p.m. Eastern time today. Thank you. Well, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.